So glad to be here at Parkwood Seven-Day Adventist Church. I'm a fill-in. Pastor's on his way somewhere. I don't know where he is. But I'm a fill-in. But I am excited because I'm sharing with you some of the studies that I have been going through this past 12 months. And it makes me a little nervous. But at the same time, I'm just so amazed at what God has put in his word and what he wants to share with us. So this is not about me. This is about him. And all I want to do this morning is lift him up this morning. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the words, your word that you've given us to learn more about you. This morning, we want to praise you. And we want to lift you high. So we're asking, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will guide the words out of my mouth. And then guide the minds that are here, that they will be open, that they will hear your words. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have relatives that you don't like? How, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> how many of you have relatives, when you have a, a big gathering, you hope they don't come? You know, and so some of you, you know, we can pick our friends. You know how that ends. But you can't pick your relatives. They're yours, no matter what. Well, today we're studying the genealogy of Jesus. Now, when we talk about the genealogy of Jesus, we know he's the son of God. That's it. But you you turn to Matthew chapter 1, and there's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you have your word, you have your Bible today, we're going to start right there. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first 14 generations of Jesus. Now you, you wonder, how could they be related to Jesus? There's a reason for this, and it's quite ironic this, this morning. We studied all the different uh, chapters in Ezra and Nehemiah, all the begets and the begets and the begets. And, you know, I usually skip over that. But there is a reason, and you're going to see today why God has placed this in his word. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Amindadab. Amindadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begat Obi by Ruth. Obi begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. That's 14 generations. Now what we're going to do this morning, we're only going to look at three of the individuals that are in his lineage. Now, we've said that we have people in our family who we wish would not show up that we're not happy with. 
But look at this. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 38. Here in the book of Genesis, it talks about one of the brothers or one of the sons of Jacob, and that is Judah. 38, Genesis chapter 38. And what's so ironic about the chapter 38? 37 talks about Joseph's plight, and at the end of 37, it talks about him being sold. And then there's a commercial, and there's Judah. At the end of Judah, we pick up Joseph again in Egypt. So, some reason, Moses thought that we needed to hear this. Now, if you remember, and I know you didn't remember, the different names that we read in those first 14 generations, one of the names was Judah. So let's look at this. It says, It came to pass that day that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Haran. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. In essence, he went off by himself. He had a buddy who was a Canaanite, a, a, a Dulamite. And while he was away, he saw this woman, and he fell in love with her, and he married her. It wasn't part of God's people, all right? She conceived and bore a son. First name was Ur. Second son was named Onad. The third was uh, Shezeb. Then Judah took a wife for Ur. So some time went on. His boys start to grow. The oldest son, he, he, he went and picked a wife for her, and her name was Tamar. Well, Ur wasn't really a nice guy. And so what happened was he died. He died before he gave Tamar any children. So Judah decided that his brother needed to, to marry Tamar to raise up the name of the dead. We'll go into that later. His brother Onan wasn't that much better, and so he died, in essence. And so that left the younger brother, uh, what was his name? Shez, Shezib. I know I'm butchering it, but you know what I'm talking about. And, but he was too young, so he told Tamar, I want you to go back to your father's house, and you play the widow until the youngest son is old enough, and then I will give him to you to marry. Now, if you were a younger brother, I don't know how you'd feel about that, okay? And not only that, he also knows that his first two brothers died. So, make a long story short, time went on, and he became a man, but Judah did not give him to Tamar. And so, Judah's wife died, and the Bible says, in verse 38 here, it says that Tamar recognized that he, she was not given the younger son. She had heard that Judah was going to go shear the sheep in Timnah. 
And so what she did was she took off her widow's gown, she put a veil on, wrapped herself up, and sat on the road to Timnah. When Judah came through, he saw her, and he said to her, can I come in to you? Now, these are the men of God. I mean, this is God's people. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are kind of out there. And she, she says to him, but what are you going to give me if I let you do this? He says, I will give you my signet and uh, a cord and his staff. So it happened, and the Bible says she conceived. And then she went home, and he went on and sheared his, his sheep. Three months later, word got to Judah that his daughter-in-law was pregnant. And you know what he said? Bring her out so we can burn her. Talking about hypocrisy. So she, he brings her out, and she comes out, and she says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these signets. And he, he gave her, she gave him his signet, his staff, and it proved that he was the father of those children. Now, this, is, this person is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. This is almost like an ancestral relationship here. But God still lists this in his genealogy. She went on to have twins. And one of the names of the twins was Perez. Perez. If you go back to Matthew 1, he's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let's go to another story. Let's go to Joshua chapter 1. Actually, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, Israel now is getting ready to conquer Canaan. Moses is dead. Joshua is in charge. And he, chapter 2, he decides to send out spies. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men for Arcadia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to, to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said to them, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the... The gate was being shut, and when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. So let's, let's go back and review this. Rahab is a harlot. <laughs> Rahab is a harlot. She is lodging on the wall, 
She owns an inn. Let's go on. I, I want that for effect. So, anyway, she hides these two spies, and, uh, and, it, and she, we pick it up here. She, had, she brought them up off the roof where she had hid them, and she said to them this. Um, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. Let me go back. Verse 9. And she said, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you have fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard now how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of Amorites who were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Org, whom you utterly destroyed, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage anyone because, in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now, think about who's saying this. You wouldn't really think that a, a prostitute would vocalize to someone these words, would you? But here is Ruth. She's acknowledging the true God. She says, I know that your God is the true God. Okay? So then she makes a, a, a pact with these guys. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her her house was on the city wall where she dwelt. And, she, and then she told them to, to uh, head to the mountains. They did that. They, in turn, confirmed that, if, if, just reading on, so it shall be that whosoever goes outside the doors of your house in the street, his blood shall be on his head. We will be guiltless, and whosoever is with you in the house, whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our heads. And if you tell this business to our, of ours, then we'll be free of all this oath that we have made. In essence, they made this oath with these spies. She made the oath. She acknowledged that God was the true God. But if you look at her profession, it, the two doesn't go together to us. And the reason why it doesn't go together is because we have stereotypes of what God's people should look like. And a lot of times we feel we know people, I know people, I work with people, and they're straight out of the devil. And, and I've, I wonder, Lord, what, what can be done with this person? They're so evil. But you look at Ruth, and the Holy Spirit, in spite of her profession, in spite of what she was doing, the Holy Spirit was working with her. So we jump to chapter 6, and let's see what happens. In chapter 6... 
uh, Joshua now, is, they're surrounded the city, they've marched around it, and he gives them instructions. He says, verse 17, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Verse 22. Um, well, verse 20. So the people shouted when, when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard this, the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the walls fell down. Then the people went into the city, every man straight forward before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house. And from there, bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spied, spies went in, brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and the vessel, the bronze and iron, they put in the treasury, treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. Now catch this. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. How did, how did Joshua name her? Rahab the, the harlot. Oh, my. So she moves in with God's people, and she marries. And if you look at Matthew 1, her name is listed. Talking about relatives. Okay, let's go to another one. Let's go to Ruth, the book of Ruth. And I love this story. You'll find the book of Ruth uh, at the end of Judges. Yeah. Now, this is a really interesting story. The time period, the setting, is when, is when God's people have now taken over the, the, the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was supposed to be a land filled with milk and honey. You remember when they sent the 12 spies and they came back with these clusters of grapes. How many men did it take to carry it? Two men. This was supposed to be a land filled with milk and honey. I mean, it was supposed to be abundant. But listen to this. Now it came to pass, I'm, I'm in Ruth, chapter, verse 1. It came to pass in the days where the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. What's wrong with this picture? They're leaving the promised land, in essence. Why are they leaving the promised land? It says there's a famine there. Well, why would there be a famine? The promise, Deuteronomy 28, the promise was that if you're faithful to me, nothing would fail. You would always have a, uh, uh, an abundance of crops. Your babies would be many. That was the blessing. But there's a famine. There's a famine in the land. And then to compound it, his God's child moving to Moab. 
Was that part of God's kingdom? No. He, his wife, and two sons. They name him Imelech, the name of his, his wife, Naomi, his two sons, Melon and Shilon. It says that they moved to Moab. And they didn't just stay for a few months. They stayed a good long time to the point where Imelech died and left his wife and his two sons and their wives. Then, ironically, the two sons died. Now, today we have organizations, we have things that help people who are down and out. If you're a widow, you have nothing, you can go to the government, you can get some help from the state. In those days, that didn't exist. The people existed from people who, who you related to. In fact, if you didn't have a male in your, in your family, it was hard to, even possible to own land. That was the only way they survived. Naomi now, at the death of her two sons and her husband, decides to go back home. So she tells her daughter-in-laws, Ophah and Ruth, to go back to their families. Go back to your family. Start a new life. Let me go back home. God has not done well with me. Go back home. Ophrah left. But this is, these are the words of Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16. She says, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if, if anything but death part you and me. You see the character of this Moabite woman. They ultimately go back to Bethlehem, and everybody welcomes Naomi back, but she is really sad because she said, I left full, and I'm, I came back empty. The, fortunately, though, she has her daughter-in-law. And her daughter-in-law goes out every day and gleams the grain that falls. After they're harvesting, they go through the fields and they pick up the barley. They take that and they make bread. They didn't eat like we eat today. The Bible says in, in chapter 2, there was a relative of Naomi, Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Imelech, and his name was Boaz. If you remember in Matthew 1, Boaz's name is mentioned. To make a long story short, um, um, Ruth then uh, is out gleaming through the fields. She ultimately ends up in, in, in uh, Boaz's fields. Apparently he's very wealthy again. And Boaz meets her and assists her. He gives her more grain, and he, and he kind of really takes care of her, takes, him, takes her under his wings. When Naomi finds out that, that Ruth is harvesting in the fields of Boaz, she tells him he is a near kin. And there was this thing in the day 
about a near kin redeeming, redeeming the, the, the wife of one who had died. So we pick this up again um, in, in chapter 3. Now Naomi, her mother-in-law, says, My daughter shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well. Now Boaz, who, uh, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best, and go to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you should notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in and uncover his feet. And lie down and tell him what you should tell him. So she was instructed by Naomi to go and to lay at the, the feet of Boaz. Apparently there was a custom that if, if you are a close relative and this ritual that she was going to do by laying at his feet would imply that she wanted to marry him and have him redeem her. So, again, to make a long story short, he agrees to do it, but there's a relative that's closer. He goes to that relative in the, in the company of the elders at the gate, and he discusses redeeming Naomi, because that's how it's the, the land of Naomi. The near relative says, okay, I will redeem that land, because he thought that he would just get the land. But Boaz says, no, you also have to redeem the widow who is Ruth and take her as your own and raise up a lineage out of, for her uh, lineage that has been lost. He says, I cannot do that because that will mess up my inheritance. Ultimately, Boaz marries her. We're in chapter 4 now. And listen to this. Verse 13, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And we drop all the way down to 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid her on her bosom and became a nurse to her. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obi. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we have Ruth, who's a Moabite, in the lineage of Jesus. You know, we, we talk about Jesus identifying with us in everything that he did. We seldom think that he identified with us even in his lineage, even in his genealogy. That, that he had people, not special people, not people, you think he should have had a royal family. Maybe all of his, his people should have come from the Levites. Really strong religious group, but that's not true. He had prostitutes in his, in his, in his lineage. He had people who were considered Gentiles. They weren't even Jews in his lineage. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? Why should that make you feel good? Understand 
who this God is. We're going to go to this last part, book of Revelation. Understand how he has identified with us in every aspect. In every aspect. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation you know, has been a struggle for our church for a long time. As soon as someone goes to the book of Revelation, they go to chapter 12. But Revelation 1.1 defines the direction of the book. It is not about beast. It is not about 666. That's in there. But let's look at Revelation verse 1.1. One, one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we keep that as our theme, as we go through these symbols and signs that we've struggled with, it, it makes a whole lot more sense. Now, we're not going to cover the first two, three verse chapters, that is. We're going to look at chapters four and five because it's consistent with what we've already covered. But we're going to come back and we're going to refer to it. In chapter 4, John, John is, is on his, his island and, and he hears this voice. It says here, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. So let's, let's clarify this. John is looking up into heaven and he sees an open door. And the voice that he hears tells him what he is going to expect to see. He says, I will show you things which must take place after this. He says, immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a, a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. So who is he describing? A lot of times when God the Father is described, you look at Daniel 7, there are words that, that are beyond the, reader, beyond the writer. He, he describes them as, as precious stones. He's looking at God the Father. He says, he's like a jasper, an emerald. And he is sitting on his throne. Now, around the throne was 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, throughout the years, I've heard different thoughts about who are these 24 elders? Who are they? Are they human? Are they people from other worlds that have never sinned? Well, let's look how they are described. They're clothed in white robes, and they have crowns of gold on their heads. Now, we know, if we just go back through the Word of God, and we look at people who are given white robes, let's look at chapter 3 
of, of, of uh, Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 14 talks about the church of the Laodicean. This is the church that, that was lukewarm. And, and God says that they, uh, they didn't know that they were lukewarm. And, and they didn't know that uh, they were poor, blind, and naked. And then he gives them this advice. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. Gold. That you may be rich and the white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyes that you may not that you may see. Now, okay, so God is now saying, Jesus is saying, you need to put on my robe of righteousness. The gold that he's talking about also refined in the fire. The goldness of faith. And then verse 20 it says, verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Is there other references? Yes. Uh, same chapter, verse 3, the church of Sardis. What is their promise? Verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name for the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There are other references. The parable of the, of the wedding feast. The king, he invites, all, he invites his people into his, his, his feast and none of them want to come. He sends out his servants, and they're beaten, and, and they're killed. So he sends his army out to destroy them, and then he invites all who would come. He says, anybody who will come, come. And so all these people of all different tribes and nationalities come into his banquet table. But there's one condition. They're all there, and he's walking through the people and he sees one who doesn't have what? The garment. And he says, my friend, where is your garment? Now, what does the garment represent? The righteousness of Jesus. Now, this is a parable. We know it's a parable. He says that, he, <coughs> excuse me, that this person was bound and, and thrown out. But it's not, it's not literal. Because nobody's going to accidentally find themselves in heaven. It isn't going to happen. You're either going to have the white robe of Jesus, or you're just not going to be there. Jesus gave this analogy to tell you and me that we need to acquire the white robes. So let's go back now to these, these 24 elders who have the white robes and the golden crown. How do we really know? How many people have gone to heaven? Are there 24 people in heaven? We really don't know. But we do know. We know that Enoch is there, right? We know that Elijah is there, right? We know that Moses is there. Is anybody else there? Ah, Matthew 27. Let's look at Matthew 27, verse 50, where Jesus now is giving up the ghost. He's on the cross and he's dying. And verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then, behold, 
the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. I believe that these 24 elders are people from this earth. No, in no place in the word of God are elders used to, re, to refer to anybody, not angels, not the ones in Job who came from other planets. They were the sons and daughters of God, but they weren't called a, ed, elders. I believe that these are people who were raised at that time period. Now, what is the significance of that? What is the significance of 24? Why 24 elders? If you look at the book of Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism as far as the number 12. How many uh, children of Israel were there? 12. How many disciples were there? What did that represent? Well, that's true. It adds to 24. But it represents the people of God. Do you remember the, the, the symbol of the sanctuary in the holy place? The, the symbol uh, in the holy place, there were three articles of furniture. On the south side of the, of the, of the temple, was, well, the south side was the lampstand. On the north side was the table of showbread. How many pieces of bread was there? Twelve. And what did they represent? They represented actually the people of God. So here you have, here you have the priest. And this is how Revelation starts. It's, it has Jesus walking through the candlesticks as a priest. What was the role of the priest when it came to the candlesticks? What did he do? He kept the light lit. So he supplied the oil. So, so here we have a, a picture of, of Jesus, the Son of Man, walking through the candlesticks in Revelation chapter 1. And he is, and each of these lampstands represent churches. Now, if you're a historic, each of these churches represent histories of time. Now, these churches were real, and they, but we have these seven letters, and it appears that all of them got their individual letter. But that's not true. If you read chapter 1, all of them got the book of Revelation. For the, the writing says that, the, that, every, that all these, he says, write this down and give the book to the churches. Now, this is all really important as we try to understand what's being written here in the word of God. So the 24 elders, I believe, are human. And, and let's go on. And from the throne proceeded lightning. Preceded lightning and thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, Revelation chapter 1 talks about the seven spirits of God. And seven is just a completeness term. They're not seven spirits. It represents the spirit in its completeness. So, so it reads on. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face of a man, and the fourth the face of an eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings full of eyes around, and they did not rest day nor night. 
they said, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. So John now, John has looked into the temple of God. And he is seeing the throne with, the, with the, God the Father in it. And he is seeing this, these, these thrones around God, the, these 24 elders. And he's seeing these beings with all these eyes. Now, the, going back, I didn't explain. These angels, this is also in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah. Ezekiel um, 1 and Isaiah 6, 2. There are pictures. I mean, they're, 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 Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about these angels. And they talk about it in the context of the sanctuary. They were cherubims in the very presence of God. There's a reason why I'm going through all this. Bear with me. So, John now is looking into the temple of God. Now, we go to chapter 5. Chapter 5 now is an embellishment of chapter 4. And what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Chapter 1 of Genesis gives you the creation story, correct? But then you go to chapter 2, and there it talks about God kneeling down into the dirt and forming man and blowing, blowing his breath into this dust, and he became a living soul. But we'd already, we'd already gone to the creation. So what has happened was chapter <coughs> 2 is embellishing chapter 1. It gives us more detail, correct? This is the same thing that's happening in chapter 5 of Revelation. In chapter 5, and I'm going somewhere with this. In chapter 5, it says, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So in the hand of the Father was a scroll. And it had seven seals on it. Rick first, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And all is quiet. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I, John, wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. You remember when John, when John came into the presence, he, he, he told him, this, who, this angel told him, I'm going to show you what is going to come to pass. The seals contain that information. So look here. So John is weeping and he's crying, but then... Who comes and talks to him? Verse 5, but one of the elders. Not, not somebody, not an angel. Not, not, uh, not somebody from another world. But one of the elders, one who had lived through this and wearing a white robe, one who had been redeemed. Okay? And he comes up to John and he says, do not weep. I love this, by the way. He says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, I didn't talk to you about Judah's role as far as being a, an older son. You think the, the oldest son is the one who is, 
absorbed into the ministry, uh, and, and they pay ransom for it. But Judah was number four. He was number four. Why Judah? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now John says, and I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne, remember we talked about the throne, God the Father sitting on the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. I'm going to stop right there. Now, this is sanctuary uh, terminology. When John saw Jesus coming in the book of John, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here, here now, John, John is looking, and he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. Now, the significance of this goes back to how he was identified in heaven. You know, if I was Jesus, I would say, uh, excuse me, excuse me, uh, I'm the son of God. No. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, who is Jesus identifying with? You and me. Now, if that doesn't sink into your heads, nothing will. Jesus, the Son of God, identifies personally with you and me, even in heaven. Even in heaven. The root of David, the line of the tribe of Judah. There's a lot of information here that we could cover. But this whole sermon now, it's about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the whole purpose of me standing up here is to show you that when, when Jesus came to this earth, he took us as we are in our mess. He took us in our sinful state. And he didn't say, okay, okay, uh, I just want the elite group, the really righteous group. He took the mess. He took your mess and he took mine. And that's amazing to me. That's amazing. That the God who spoke us into, into existence would want to identify with us like this. This is my message today. And this is what John realized at this setting. And I'm going to read this and then I'm going to close. He's now when he had taken the scroll, because the lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowl, bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang the new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open his seal, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth forever.
and ever and ever. This morning, this God that I've read about is wanting you to understand that he knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly every struggle that you go to. He knows about every sin that you've engaged in. And he says, you're still mine. I still love you. And I want you to be part of my kingdom. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For giving so much. As we give so little gratitude. For you've given all of heaven. You've, you've forfeited your title in a sense. So that you can identify with us. When we see you in heaven, you'll, have, you'll still have the prints of the nails in your hand and your feet. You'll still have that as a reminder of the sin that you went through and what you went through to save us. Lord, help us not to take this for granted. For Lord God Almighty, what more could you do? What more could you do? Lord, help us to believe and help us to submit our will to you, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.